0: Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation with Jocelyn Alcott, an associate professor of history and gender, sexuality, and feminist studies at Duke University. Her book, International Women's Year, the Greatest Consciousness-Raising Event in History, published by Oxford University Press, is a topic of this show. Her book examines the genesis of the UN's 1975 International Women's Year and a two-week conference of NGOs and government officials held in Mexico City. From the planning to the gathering itself, there were conflicts regarding what were the significant women's issues among the world's geopolitical divides. Cold War competition colored how delegates, often from the same nation, differed in their expectations. Women from third world nations expressing concern with subsistence labor, gender violence, and racism clashed with women from the first world concerned with marketplace and sexual rights. Conservative, liberal, and radical groups competed for attention and the opportunity to influence the official world plan of action. In identifying the most pressing concerns of women, global politics and intersectionality experienced by many could not be avoided. Alcott offers insight into the riveting backstories, conflicts, personalities, and enduring legacy of the International Women's Year, a pivotal event for what became known as global feminism. Here is my conversation with Jocelyn Alcott. Now, let me introduce you to the author, Jocelyn Alcott. Hello, Jocelyn. Hello. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience you describe the conflict-fraught 1975 International Women's Year Conference that most of us know little about, which I really think your book captures uh, the deep divisions, and the conference itself captures the deep divisions within feminism itself. But before we get into the book, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you
1: came to write International Women's Year. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. Um I I am trained originally as a historian of Mexico. So I came to this project thinking that I was writing a completely different book, a book about Mexico, about women in Mexico. And this conference, I thought would just be a tiny sliver of a chapter of that book. And in fact, Actually, the dirty secret is that I was committed for tenure and I thought, well, I need to like get something out of my next book. So I'm going to do this, a quick article on this two week conference. And I had heard so much about it. I figured there must be a pretty dense secondary literature on it. So I was just starting out by reviewing the secondary literature. And what I realized was that there really wasn't much written about it, which completely surprised me. I had heard about this both from a Latin American studies and from a women's studies perspective as being this pivotal moment in transnational feminism. And the only things that I could find were article length and they were almost all of them written by journalists who had been there or participants who had been there, you know, which give us, a, a, you know, important perspectives and little pieces of the puzzle, but they don't really give you the whole story and they certainly don't give you the history of the event. And so I started off by trying to, piece together what had happened with an event that a lot of us heard about in, in college, which was this, a memoir from a memoir written by this Bolivian woman, Domitila Badia de and a famous, what everyone mentioned was a famous confrontation between her and Betty Friedan. So the first thing I discovered was that that confrontation never actually happened. And that got me curious about other things that we thought we knew about this conference that, and, and this year that were not true. And once I started getting, researching into that, it got me in with so much interesting material and so many interesting characters that it just mushroomed into this whole book that, that you have now.
0: Now, the, the, the conference itself, which has got two sections of it, one, one is the official conference, which is diplomats. Uh, representatives for all the nations that are part of the UN. And then you've got this other sort of NGO, more informal conference that brings in all these sort of activist people and women who are working on the ground for women's uh, rights and whatever. Uh, But first, before we get into that, I want to know, how did the International Women's Year get designated a special year of
1: 1975? (laughs) Yeah, so it started out as really a geopolitical conflict of of sorts, or or, or certainly a a Cold War story, which is that the group that first put forward the idea of having International Women's Year was a group called the Women's International Democratic Federation, which is what's called a non-governmental organization or an NGO, Uh, and it's exceptional and and maybe even unique in that it is a Soviet-aligned or at that point was a Soviet-aligned or Eastern Bloc aligned NGO. And they approached, I think it was the Finnish and Romanian delegates at the Commission on Status of Women and said, why do we do this thing? We'll have this great international women's year. The UN have been doing a number of theme conferences on things like the environment or human rights or population and and we'll take stock of what the Commission on Status of Women has accomplished so far. It also turned out that 1975 was the 30th anniversary of their founding. So the Women's International Democratic Federation already planned to have a big conference. Originally, it was planned in Paris, and then they, they moved it to East Berlin. Um, and so it, they started out as this kind of, let's just take stock of what's happening. When the United States State Department, which was wholly uninterested in this at the beginning, realized that the major event would be a big conference in East Berlin and that it looked like, the Soviet line of sort of Warsaw Pact countries were laying claim to women's rights as a place where, you know, much like issues of racism, where Eastern Bloc countries seemed to be claiming that the U.S. was on the wrong side or was falling behind. Um, then suddenly the State Department got interested. And then a lot of diplomatic and geopolitical issues got caught up in, in this conference. What was the initial
0: uh, idea about what the conference was going to accomplish?
1: So initially the idea was that there was there were a number of of kind of shared concerns certainly around literacy around political rights around this sort of thing and that the, all these women would come together around a shared agenda that they would then ava- advance around the world. Now, uh, as, as you know, what happens is you get women together in this really unprecedented moment. It's women together from all over the world and all kinds of backgrounds. And what they find is they have very different ideas about what their priorities are. So it didn't play out quite as, as they had expected, but it was the sense that, you know, women were a core part. I mean, particularly at that point, there was a sense that, um, on issues of development, which were really a central part of the U.N. agenda, that women had to be part of that story. And so how do we get women to, into sort of more of the U.N. agenda?
0: Now how did it end up in, in Mexico City?
1: So that's a funny story. It started out that it was going to be, you know, there was this, this East Berlin conference, plan, but it started out that the official U.N. conference would be in Bogota, um, in Colombia and Colombia was going through a democratic transition so it had transitioned from having uh, uh, trading off parties governing to an open election and no one knew what party would be elected and when the new party was elected they decided they didn't want to host the, the conference anymore and Mexico City or Mexico rather the Mexican government was led by a man who was nearing the end of his Mexico's a single six year term or was near the end of his term as president and was very eager to succeed Kurt Waldheim as secretary general of the U.N. So when Bogota, when when Colombia decided that they wouldn't host it, uh, Mexico quite eagerly stepped in to host it.
0: Now, during the planning stages, before we get to the conference, I want to talk about the planning stages because during planning the conference, they were short of money. They were short on time. There were also lots of conflicts about what was important, what was going to be covered, who was going to be invited, who was going to represent who. Uh, right there in that planning stage, before they even got to New- to Mexico City, you could see – that there was going to be trouble. So what are some of the issues and conflicts and problems that were happening during the planning process? It sort of give us a clue of what's coming.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, already during the the kind of setup during the planning is complicated because there are these two groups um, that are trying to plan. There, As, as I think you mentioned, there, there are two parallel conferences. There's an official government conference, and then there's a parallel NGO conference it's clear there's going to be conflict at the parallel NGO conference because there's conflict even between who gets to control the planning. Um, There was a group in Geneva that was much more diverse, but because of that diversity, it was everything moved a little bit more slowly. Just getting people together was more complicated. And then there was this much smaller, but much less diverse, in fact, quite, quite homogeneous group of New Yorkers that was planning from the UN headquarters in New York City. And, And because of time and money, they ended up really being in control of that. And then on the government side, there was just, that's to say the official conference of government delegation, there was conflict really from the get-go. That is to say... Every, everything about who could be invited, what, you know, all these national liberation movements were afoot, which of them do you g- give status to attending a conference like this? Uh, Mozambique got independence right in the middle of the conference. <laughs> was, I mean, so there's there was sort of upheaval in who could represent, and that that really shaped that. But and on both sides, on the issues where, even where it seemed like there should be complete agreement, so, um, there are some that seem really obvious like literacy so on literacy you think everybody understands literacy is good and th- but there were issues first of all it meant that you you privileged the written word over the over oral communication which for a lot of women that they principally commu- like knowledge was transmitted orally it also meant that you privileged often imperial languages like spanish or french over whatever indigenous languages there might have been in that community and that's how literacy was measured Another issue that seemed like it would be one that for unity was motherhood. Like, who doesn't love motherhood, right? And it seemed like the core natural biological aspect of womanhood. But once you got a bunch of people in the room, started talking about what you mean by motherhood and what it's supposed to look like and what policies attach to it. It got very fraught. Um, in fact, in some ways, those issues that seem most so-called natural end up being, I think, the thorniest to deal with um, in this kind of a conference.
0: And then there's some bigger uh, issues between the first world and third world. Uh, third world wants to talk, even the women, they want to talk about development, economic development, uh-huh. they want to talk about imperialism. Those are, you know, decolonization, that sort of thing. And uh, the first world women want to talk about equality, you know, political rights, uh, more. uh, And that right there sets them
1: yeah, so there were three th- official themes for the conference, um, and that, for both the conference and the, the tribune that were, were taken up. They were, they, they were designated as equality, development, and peace. And they got kind of shorthanded as equality was the first world kind of Anglo-American issue, and development was the third world issue, and peace was seen as the sort of the second world or Soviet bloc issue. And that kind of worked, <laughs> but, what happens in practice is that, so-called equality issues, so things like um voting rights and access to education and training were really advocated by, by a lot of first world women. On the other hand, they're certainly important in other contexts. Development ends up standing for a lot of different things, and there's a lot of disagreement about what you mean when you talk about development. Like, you know, is this a market-based development? Is it something where you're giving out support as a kind of almost reparations to to newly decolonized countries. There's a lot of conflict over that and, and where um, decolonization fits into that. And then peace became this kind of catch-all term. At the point when I was doing the research for this, I thought, Peace just stands for things that uh, the United States opposes, right? Where like there's this, where it's a U.S.-Soviet conflict, so it becomes that's the category that ends up holding anti-colonialism, anti-racism, and most controversially, anti-Zionism gets tossed in there, which we can talk about more. It's it's one of the most complicated parts of the conference, um, but also things like nuclear disarmament, which the United States opposed, and you know, a whole host of issues where. where the Soviet Union was clearly trying to kind of stick it to the United States in terms of issues where they thought the U.S. was vulnerable, social issues where the U.S. seemed vulnerable. So they kind of divide along these geopolitical lines, but each of those categories is really messy.
0: Now, there's the uh, the idea is that at the end of this conference, I guess it's the formal sort of the diplomatic part of the conference, Mm -hmm. that wants to issue this world plan for action. Yeah. And, And the tribune is not supposed to, like, have a say in that right which right yeah. there then you've got a problem from with one right. conference with against the other conference because right. why can't we have a say right so
1: yeah I mean so the world kind of action is you know th- these these thematic conferences were relatively new but each of these big UN theme conferences issues a plan like what's our game plan for what we're gonna do and they're often very technocratic documents like what how what's how are we going to measure improvement from this moment to that moment? So there's going to be a UN decade for women. What's the mid-decade measures? What are our goals? It's very um, sort of policy wonkish and numbers driven. Social science sort of. Social science driven, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of economists and development specialists involved. And the women who show up at the NGO Tribune, there's a decision that's made that one of the um, kind of unexpected heroes in this book is this woman named Milda Persinger, who is this Virginian who ends up organizing the NGO Tribune. And one of the, the really the key decision that she makes is that she decides this NGO Tribune, rather than being a closed meeting of what are called consultative status NGOs, she opens it up first to any NGOs that register any recognized NGOs, then she opens up to anybody who just registers to show up, anyone who registers to show up, and then she opens it up to just everybody who walks in the door, right? So by like three days from the conference, anybody can walk into this NGO Tribune. And so what it means is that instead of having what might have originally been envisioned uh, as a group of mostly women who had been involved in UN NGO activities for decades and had a kind of protocol-bound parliamentarian style of deliberation, you have all of these activists from all over the world who have all kinds of ideas about what democracy is supposed to look like or how much say they're supposed to have. And in particular, you have a group of feminists mostly from the United States, but also from other places who were extremely distrustful of governments and government representation and of expertise and all of this stuff, and who are basically saying, like, why should those guys in suits and ties up in the Ministry of Foreign Relations be making this plan that's going to affect our lives? We want to have a say. And so it ends up being a really dramatic moment in terms of the way that feminism is challenging, or or certainly one strand of feminism, is challenging the very concept of liberal democracy, which is sort of a fascinating. I think it's sort of a fascinating element of this whole conference. Um, but it happens quite unex, it, it I don't think it's entirely unexpected by Melda Persinger and her fellow organizers in that they know they're inviting chaos. They they kind of want it. They 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 set aside empty rooms at the Tribune, a lot of empty space in the agenda to say. Let's see what you what you bring to the table. And they actually welcome the kind of generative chaos that ensues.
0: And it comes also issues about what is not only what is development, but also what is feminism. Mm -hmm. How do you define feminism? Yeah, uh, that's right. Across different women. Uh, One of the things that comes up a lot is women's economic contribution. Uh While the women of the first world think they want women to be more included in the market economies, the capitalist market economies, there's a lot of women who are living, you know, on bare bones trying to feed their families in third world countries. They don't relate to that. They're not going to put on a suit and go to a corporate office. That's just not going to happen. That's right. (laughs) So, how does that play out?
1: Economics is very important in this. Yeah. So, it's interesting because this. This was an issue that was somewhat new, but not unknown. There was a famous book by a woman named Esther Bosrop that was published in 1970 called Women in Economic Development, I believe it was called. Um, And uh, where she says basically all of these economic development schemes that you have, they're all geared toward men. And they actually make things worse for women. They actually, because they they give so much attention to pulling men into the labor market or using machinery. They actually mean that women end up having less say in their household and a heavier labor burden in most parts of, of the third world. So that's happening. And there's already, this is before you see some of the important feminist economic interventions by people like Marilyn Waring and Nancy Fulbright, but you still see the beginnings of, of women, a feminist saying we're moving toward a situation where most of our labor, like most of the labor we do every day is not getting counted. It's not showing up in the D- GDP or in the UN version of that, which is a system of national accounts. It just gets completely erased. And uh, an- another um, her- hero that I hadn't known before in this in this book is an Australian feminist named Elizabeth Reed. And she really pushes that. And, and she just says, you know, listen, if you if you want to think about how to solve this problem, you've got to find some way to recognize this labor. So there was all that, but there was also just a, a deep miss. I mean, I think we still I in fact, just today on the radio heard something where they the way they measure women's liberation was by how many women were in the paid labor force. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's just not from for most women. That's like alienating your own labor is not how you think about your own liberation. You think about things that are dignifying your labor, recognizing or rights that you that attend to to, to what you you provide but it's not um, selling your labor power is not the main thing so that was a real disconnect because for a lot particularly of US feminists and you think about how important Betty Friedan was and she was there and she was a leader of this this group saying we were trying to get out of the house and into the workforce and to have our labor recognized and paid for and, pay and get equal pay so that was a whole I mean it just there was a, a marvelous cartoon which I couldn't put in the book because I, I couldn't track down the cartoonist and I, I didn't want to publish it without being Able to pay some royalties, but um, that shows this a woman and who's clearly in a probably a, an, an African country, or she's in, clearly an Afro-descended woman, and she's has this kind of Rube Goldberg contraption where she's reading a book and doing laundry and caring for a baby and cooking something on the stove and all this like this whole machinery she has going that, shows that she can do you know a million different things at once and all of these time use studies were showing that women were doing immense, immense amounts of labor. And in all of these policy documents that those UN folks were looking at up at the at the government conference, none of that labor showed up, that labor was completely invisible. And that was probably the place that that if if there was one area of agreement, that might have been the area agreement, but it was it was a place that was very difficult to make progress about how to address it. Um, And I, I would insist that we still have not come up with a good way to address that issue.
0: And it also has to do with how we see uh, these women who are in the third world wanted recognition for what they were already doing. Right. They w- didn't want to be told, well, for you to advance, you need to leave your home and go work in a factory Yeah, yeah. because then you'll be counted because this disrupts a lot of family patterns that's and right. communal patterns and all that. So you just mentioned Betty Friedan, and she was a very controversial figure at yeah. the conference. Actually, she came off very unlikable, even in your book. Okay, <gasps> I tried to correct for that. I'm sorry. No, I, no, I, no, no, no. No, I think it's the truth. I think you told the truth about Betty Friedan. Uh, she was so uh, narrow in her view of what feminism meant. And yeah. And she, she knew better. I think it was the whole attitude of, we know better. <laughs> You know, we're yes. from the United States and we know better.
1: That was explicit. I mean, there's no question. I mean, she said she said to a reporter before she went down there, we are our sister's keeper. I mean, she was really insistent. And, and she and other leaders of now were very clear in their minds that their job was to go down and teach people how to be proper, legitimate feminists. And, and that was really a problem. But, and, and so I don't mean to defend that, and I think that one of the major lessons learned in Mexico City and, and again over the subsequent UN conferences was that there are many different modes of feminism, very different feminisms, plural, and, um, and certainly the US is one, but it, it actually is a pretty parochial one. It's a very specific one. And, but I will say this about Betty Friedan, which is that she was fighting a, the fight, right? I mean, it's, and, and part of, I think, her attitude was, which, you know, in retrospect, it seems very narrow and 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 very ill-informed, was she felt like every time she turned around, you know, the government or the Catholic Church or somebody was trying to shut women down, and so that she had to be constantly embattled. And there's this actually really poignant moment in, um, you know, one of the things I wrote, she has a, a <laughs> this kind of hilarious Short essay she wrote called "Scary Doings in Mexico City," which is has a sort of Cold War thriller style um, uh, tone to it, but where she talks about watching things really blow up in, in the NGO Tribune and how much conflict there was and how how few how little women really agreed on. And she and she had really been vilified for trying to kind of control things too much, and so she had stepped aside so that she wouldn't seem like she was trying to control things. And she just kind of went out of the Tribune and sat on a bench and just cried. I mean, she just was, she just was just really de- depressed is not even quite the word, just beside herself that this all, this, this moment that she thought could be a moment of tremendous unity, that's what they all saw was unity, um, just seemed to be falling apart. And, you know, you look back and it seems naive that you would think that you could bring all these women together and they would all agree. But I, I think she really had a kind of utopian idea that, women would govern differently in the in the way that she and a lot of us feminists tell the story you always know that something bad is happening cuz men show up and it's you know if men are in the room like something's gone wrong which was not a view that was shared by most of the women at this at the tribune at the conference um but she, it it comes from this place that is not um you know she could be self-aggrandizing and self-important and all of that and and certainly parochial in her, in her own way but it also came from a place of really wanting, as she successfully did, really wanting to push feminist issues into the international consciousness. So I I, I regret a bit if, if Betty Friedan comes off as, as quite the villain that I think she maybe does, because like, she did important work there, even if it was only the work of antagonism that made other things happen, if that makes sense.
0: Right. It may be that I just know a lot about Betty Friedan, and so I've already <laughs> came into it with some prejudices. Um now, there was something you just brought up with the the participation of men was an issue also. Yeah, some women didn't. Some women in the world wanted. They said we need our men to help us because right. we're going to do this by ourselves. And then there you right. got first word women who are going. Their men are the problem. This is yeah. why we're here. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was kind huh. of an interesting way of look. How how women, different women looked yeah. at men and their participation.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, um, as you know, the subtitle of the book is the greatest consciousness raising event in history because that was the term that was used a lot to describe this conference. And, this was a moment of my own little, like, consciousness-raising experience when I was researching this book because I, when I was first looking through it, I saw that um, the, the Mexican Attorney General, Pedro Ojeda Payada, was named the president of the government conference, the president of this International Women's Year Conference. I was outraged. I mean, I will admit it. I was like, what the what the hell like this is a women's conference they can't come, like what's going on here and um so then i so i'm a little chagrined to say that i then realized as i did more research that there are two things that were happening one is that it is a completely standard un protocol that the person who was the head of the delegation of the host country then presides over the un conference so that was part of what was happening there but well, the other thing that happened was that the U.N. had actually been really specific that they did not want, in, in particular, the women at the U.N. who were organizing this conference didn't want this conference just to be um, kind of marginalized or uh I'm not sure if this is an appropriate term, but kind of ghettoized into uh, a space where nobody else would pay attention, right? Where, I mean, it already was underfunded and not given any time. And they they thought that if men were not made to participate, that it would just be shoved aside. And so the UN actually had a policy that they wanted delegations that were even numbers of men and women, which most delegations didn't manage to pull off, but, but they, they did call for that. But then the other thing that happened was that, you know, while Betty Friedan was threatening to lead a march of women up insurgentes or up La Reforma, I guess it was, to to protest having a man preside over this conference, most of the women, particularly women from from Latin American countries, were saying, look, this is a good thing. This means that finally this stuff is going to get taken seriously. And we can't solve these problems on our own. These aren't women's problems. They're social problems. They're problems of full, complete societies. And so these have to be things that we work out between men and women and and together in concert. And I think that it really marked what a lot of people saw as the clear divide that that Betty Friedan and those who were kind of in her camp were seen as men and women always being antagonistic and always fighting over some set amount of resources. And a lot of women who were kind of in this this group of mostly third world women saying, that's not, that's not really how we experience it. What we experience is that there's been a lot of discrimination and women have not gotten their due, but that this is something that we need to think of together that will benefit men and women both. And so – it was a it was a major I think both uh, strategic divide but also I, I think a deep ideological divide about what feminism was supposed to be.
0: Now I want to bring something up. How because they were short on money and mm-hmm. time and uh, more people showed up for this conference than they ever planned. It was like they get they they get away with name tags because they couldn't keep up yeah. couldn't keep up with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was the role of journal, the journalist and how was the press used
1: yeah.
0: to let yeah. people know what was actually happening in the conference?
1: Right. So th- one of the things that I was surprised to discover, although, you know, I suppose most historians will not be surprised by this, um, is that you you have really different, what I think of as really different kind of publics created by these diff- the, the different press coverage. So the Mexico City Press the Mexican press in general, but particularly the Mexico City Press, covered the conference really closely every single day. Um, And a lot of U.S. papers, in particular the Washington Post and the New York Times, had reporters there and covered it. Um, Le Monde, the French newspaper, had sent somebody there months ahead of time to start doing the coverage, you know, and and had very close coverage. Um, And then importantly, there was a, a... publication that was funded mostly by the Ford Foundation and organized by the NGO Tribune organizers that was a, a publication called Shilanen, which is named after an Aztec corn goddess, um, but that would was a, a a conference newspaper and it covered both events at the government conference and events at the NGO Tribune. And that carried co- coverage in both Spanish and in English and very occasionally in French. Um And mostly it was articles and then occasionally, you know, there are some letters to the editors and some opinion columns and things like that. And what I discovered was that in particular, there were two very different publics created by the Spanish and the English language coverage, which I had not anticipated. I mean, in some ways, if you think about it, it's not all that surprising. Um, I think most of the U.S.-based reporters didn't speak Spanish, and so they were dependent upon the English language informants that they could find and stuff that was in translation. In some ways, it makes sense. It's a UN conference, so the official stuff is all in translation. A lot of people speak English. I think most of the, of the Mexican reporters didn't speak English, and so they often didn't understand what was happening in when, when exchanges were happening in English, or they understood it in a really limited way. And so you have these... Like oddly, totally parallel narratives that emerge out of the coverage, including within the publication of Shilanen, you would have language, have articles in Spanish and English that would about the same event, but they wouldn't be direct translations of each other. They would have really different tone and emphases and particularly as the conference wore on and the conflicts became more pronounced, the differences, they would diverge further. So at the very beginning, they were pretty much, they were pretty close to being direct translations. By the end of the conference, they're really quite different, even though they're talking about the same event. And you never know, they don't have bylines on the, in, on the, in Shilin, and so you don't know who's writing what, but it's a, it's an interesting part of that, that coverage. And in many ways, the, the press... Really shapes things there.
0: Yeah, you know, so it's, you're talking about public reception also too, um, the press being the conduit for the public getting some kind of vision or idea of what this is, what's going on down there. Right. Yeah. I, I know you don't you don't address this in your book, but did you run into what what did Americans think think when they're reading stuff in the New York Times about this or the Washington Post and they're here? Right. Are they are they saying, see, you get a bunch of women together and you
1: can't make well, sense I, of anything. I mean, so the one thing I do, I actually kind of opened the book book with this, and you probably remember it, which is that um, the AP, of course, had coverage down there. And the there's this um, amazing, wonderful AP reporter named Peggy Simpson, who was the AP reporter there and, and at a bunch of other UN conferences. Um, and they had an AP photographer. And the photographer had taken a shot of these two women at the NGO Tribune sort of wrestling over the microphone. And... The cropped version of that shot, which if you see the the larger picture, it looks much less that it's about this hard hard fight um got that was a thing that was the, literally the most circulated image from this conference around the world i mean it's the, it's the associated press and in fact the role of wire services and satellites and the ways that industrialized countries controlled press coverage was a big issue in the UN at the time and and sort of in these international conversations at the time. So this is a perfect example of, you know, how a wire service circulates around the globe, a picture of two Latin American women arguing over the microphone. And pe- when Peggy Simpson saw this picture going out, she was horrified and she, she writes in this, this memoir she wrote later about hearing about this over dinner and desperately trying to sort of recall that picture or at least give it some context so that it didn't seem as kind of damning as it, as a, the, exactly the image that you're talking about that people looked at it and they thought, oh, this is what they called a global cat fight, right? And it was, you know, if you, uh, if you look at the bigger picture, what you see is that they're standing on a, Dias and there's a number of women seated up at the, at the at the dais and uh several of them are kind of laughing at what's going on it seems to be it's like m- maybe they're wrestling but kind of in jest or maybe they're you know but there's a like it doesn't seem nearly like it's this we can't agree on anything um it seems more this is you know it's, a, it's an intense moment to be sure but um but it was there was no question that part of what was happening and and i the New York Times, in particular, just had immense disdain uh, in a lot of its coverage for the feminist issues being being um raised there so that was you know that was part of the coverage as well
0: <laughs> because there's also you know there's a, a history there of women saying if women you know." had a chance to govern we wouldn't have all the war and violence in the world you know peace and harmony would rule and this picture sort of just says see women you know they're gonna be (laughs) just like
1: us or worse right right and and that that kind of old saw that like women are you know women are always going to fight they're never going to be able to get along because really they're always in competition with one another Um, which is a big part of what the feminists were trying to argue against now there's
0: a in in the midst of all this Cold War conflicts, economic development, uh, you know, there's all these global issues of distribution of resources. And it's, all of a sudden you've got these first world group of feminists who are going to be making uh, a lot of noise about sexual rights. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, yeah. uh, lesbianism, mm-hmm. uh you know, people who are, you know, women shouldn't be compelled to marry and be mothers. Uh, yeah. um, yeah. there's contraception, there's abortion, there's so many issues around sexuality, which yeah. for some of the more conservative women who are coming from third world countries where this is like so out of their mind, they're not thinking about that. They're just yeah. thinking about tomorrow and feeding the families. Can you talk, yeah. can you talk about that and how this in a way, when I saw that, when I read that, I'm going, wow, this is really being out of touch.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the heartbreaking aspects of this conference, although I would argue this is not something that's been resolved, which is that um, human rights and sexual rights were generally put set up as a kind of zero-sum game, right? Mm-hmm. And that if – in several moments during this conference, there are – explicitly moments when participants have to choose between are you going to go to this event for, you know, that that's protesting human rights abuses under the Pinochet regime in Chile and how women are getting taken in as political prisoners, or are you going to go to this other thing that's about reproductive freedom or that's about lesbian rights and so it's really they're really set up in opposition to one another and and repeatedly you have participants saying um in particular on the on the side of the kind of human rights end saying if you're supporting all of this sort of sexual rights stuff you're you know it's just a distraction you're de- you're de- you're detracting from what, we're, from what we're trying to do um i think that part of that uh has to do with the, you know, as, as any good historian would say, it has to do with context, um, has to do with the particular context, which is that in the mid 70s, and I think that, that you know, a lot of people remember this, uh, there is a really aggressive population control efforts. And so um, forced sterilizations, not just in places like India and Mexico, but also in places like Los Angeles and right here in North Carolina, where I live, um, where a lot of women and and occasionally men as well, but. Uh, mostly women were being um, sterilized against their will. I think for a lot of third world women, the question about population control was, was miscast. They wanted to say, well, the the problem here is resource consumption and that's y'all's problem. That's not, you know, that's a first world problem. That's not a third world problem. The problem is per capita consumption. And so there was this real tension over that. And, and so when, U.S. feminists came in, really emphasizing reproductive rights and access to abortion. This is, of course, is just two years after Roe v. Wade, and they're you know they're kind of flying high on that. Um, the sense from a lot of the third world women is, wait, we're not. We want to know why you're trying to control our bodies. And it, it, U.S.A.I.D. was really involved with a lot of the reproductive control and the kind of population control stuff. And so there was a real tension around that that got caught up in. This population control forced sterilization stuff Um, and the stuff about lesbian rights, which is it's a really interesting moment in the conference, but also gets swept up in, you know, this issue we talked about earlier, where a lot of third world women who were thinking about issues of gender complementarity didn't really were really perplexed about where lesbianism, for example, would fit into that. Like, how does that You know, how does that fit? Um, I just say one of the most prominent leaders, though, of the lesbian rights discussion at the conference was a really prominent Mexican playwright and and, um, theater director named Nancy Cardenas, who um, this is the piece of Mexican history that I like, which is it's the first ever issuing of the Mexican Mexican lesbian manifesto. And it's when a lot of the Mexican lesbian organizations that had been underground, Come out, so to speak, Um, and that was a really critical moment of the conference, not least because it's when a lot of, I mean, mostly Mexican, because it was in Mexico, but a lot of third world lesbians spoke out at that conference. So it's it's more complicated than just first world, third world, but it certainly gets cast as a first world, third world problem by a lot of the media and by a lot of the human rights people who want to dismiss the sexual rights part of it.
0: Yeah, like when you, I think it just reminded me of the fact that. While lesbians might be fighting in the late 20th century for the right to marry mm-hmm. each other, you've got situations in all over the world where women are forced to marry. Right. Or you have exactly. child marriage, and yes. they're going, You're worried about having the right to marry? We're worried about the right not <laughs> yeah. to get married.
1: <laughs> Right, exactly. And so it's, it's you just have these, and, it, and partly it's that this is, you know, this conference in 1975 is sort of sui generis. You haven't had anything like this with such a diverse group of women and such a diverse group of, it's collection of issues. And so that's part of it, is it's a, it's a beginning of what's become a very long conversation. But at the beginning, there's a lot of misunderstanding that's happening. Now, part of it
0: was kind of, uh, some of the chaos at this uh, tribune was, was sort of by design because the planners sort of left it sort of really open, a lot of time for open mic sort of thing. You know, people could get up and talk about what they wanted to talk about. And it was all like they were asking for it. You know, yeah. there was no, there was nothing shaping it. They were, it's just show up and speak your piece, which yeah, is it, was that, did they realize that's what's going to happen or
1: did they thought it was well, going to be better than what happened? I don't think they realized what um, exactly what would happen, but they absolutely, I think that when Mildred Persinger, who organized the NGO Tribune, and um, a Chilean woman named Marcia Jimena Bravo, who was actually living in New York and working with the Population Council, um, they kind of planned the logistics and they explicitly said, we are going to you know for, again open the 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 tribune up to anybody who shows up and then we're going to have all of these rooms and you can just sign up anybody can sign up to reserve a room and so you know, the lesbians reserve a room and the Chileans reserve a room. And the, there are these Ukrainian hunger strikers that are kind of this mysterious presence there. They're reserving a room. So there's all of these groups that just reserve rooms to, to stage conversations about all kinds of different, you know, it's women against imperialism and, you know, the Catholic women and all kinds of groups. And then sometimes there are these, the, the, one of the things they have, which is very 1970s is the global speak out. So, they just set this whole thing up and women line up at the microphone. I mean, not just women, but almost mostly women line at the microphones to speak their piece. And there's, you know, their time limits and whatever, but about what they think are the are the most pressing issues. And part of what it and I know that seems a little nutty, but it actually was the most important part of this conference, which is that per, Milda Persinger and Marcia Jimena Bravo were really clear that what they needed to do was to allow all of that chaos to exist and all of it to come out and to have it be that kind of frictive generative conversation. And, and what's interesting is, and, and this actually was, I thought one of my more interesting finds was that if you look at the discussions in particular with um, like people from places like the Ford foundation, people, they're asking for money to support this. Part of what they're saying is, This is going to be a sort of didactic moment, but not in the way that Betty Friedan and her ilk are matching, which is where U.S. feminists come down and they teach everybody else how to be a real feminist, but quite the reverse, which is that all of these third world women are going to teach North American feminists about the the vast range of women's issues and how many different constituents there are as part of this movement. And they actually succeeded. I mean, it wasn't, you know, okay. So case closed, we've done that. We can check that off our list now. But they really did succeed in opening up what has been an incredibly important conversation that's played out in the decades since. And and I, I can't help but credit these – you know, Mildred Persinger was an incredibly inexperienced organizer at the time. She'd come up through the YWCA, which – I now realize is this incredibly important force for both gender and racial justice, which I had no idea about, but I now have learned a lot more about the YWCA, and and she had been involved, she'd been involved with civil rights stuff in Virginia, where she had grown up, and then she'd moved to Dobbs Ferry with her husband, and and, in this kind of suburb of New York, And and, but she wasn't somebody, I mean, she was nobody's rabble-rouser, and she wasn't even a particularly experienced organizer, and she got tapped for this for, I think, reasons having to do with Wanting to get out of some of the Cold War issues, um, she also was just a, a particularly gracious person, which I think, uh, was an important part of this story in ways I hadn't anticipated. She would write these wonderful notes to people thanking them and so forth. And it, and it um, it just sort of created goodwill in ways that I think wouldn't have happened had the, of hardline cold warriors remained in charge of things.
0: Yeah, I think it, I, I was. This is just a little side, but can you imagine if we had a national, a U.S. national convention and everybody showed up with, to, and with an open mic? Well, <laughs> you know, so I mean, is- it would be crazy. We
1: would have a war. <laughs> Well, there was a war. So, so two yeah. years later, the the United States, in classic form, has its own International Women's Year conference. That's not international. It's not during International Women's Year. It took place in Houston. It was all U.S. women in 1977, and so that was that was what the U.S. called the International Women's Year conference. It's a little confusing. There's actually a, a new book about that out. That conference out now as well, which is it was crazy. But that is the conference where Betty Friedan and Phyllis Schlafly went out right that is that's where phyllis clasley really first made her name in the stop era campaign and all of that and so it it was a war um it's also where where betty fredan finally turns away like gives up on her lavender menace language her like anti-lesbian language so um but that that happens a couple of years later and it was cra- that was another crazy moment the i think it's the kansas delegation turned its back during the discussion of abortion rights and that's a that's a pretty crazy okay. moment.
0: So. Well, there is a, okay, so you've got all this conflict and they've got all these rooms set up and ways for people to connect with each other who have common interests, but all of a sudden you've got these counter-Congresses uh, sort of, Getting started yeah. caucuses, uh, Betty Dan leads one and, and they're trying to like shape the, the world plan for action. They're trying to come up with a list of propositions that they want everybody to agree on. But that was like part of the thing was no, we're not going to make an issue a statement and no one can issue a statement.
1: Yeah. That was really controversial. So Betty Friedan led what was at first called the Feminist Caucus, and the Feminist Caucus started before the conference even started. She started there. Had been a pre-conference gathering of journalists that had been mostly intended for third-world journalists to be able to educate first-world attendees. Again, to kind of counter this first world domination of international media. And um, there were other participants, Gloria Steinem participated in that as well. Um, although she left before the conference really got, got going. And Betty Friedan was there and Betty Friedan starts what she calls the feminist caucus. And that is this group that comes out trying to kind of dominate the Tribune. And then insists, even though the organizers of the Tribune were really explicit at Every opportunity they got, like all of the promotional materials and all of the registration materials and the the opening conference and every chance they got, they said, nobody speaks for the Tribune. We're not going to take minutes. We're not going to have any official report. And no one is allowed to represent the position of the Tribune. And Betty Vernon totally ignores that. And she leads a group of a, a, de- a delegation of women up from the NGO Tribune to the government conference to try and shape this official world plan of action. And it's a it's hugely controversial. Um, and and then she, they try to kind of correct this. They rename themselves the United Women of the Tribune to sort of get away from the, the feminist language that that set them apart a bit. Um, but it's it's. I mean, it was there was no way to really. There was so many problems. First of all, the amendments that they were proposing were only available in English. Nobody had seen them. They wanted to say that it represented the whole Tribune, but they couldn't possibly. And so it just ended up being more evidence that that feminism was some sort of you know U.S. imperialist project, which you know didn't didn't play well. There was one uh,
0: scene that you describe. It's I think it's when the this, uh feminist caucus i guess and uh was, was gathering and there were there the, the official representatives of the united states uh were there and they were there was a couple there were a couple of men or there was a man, and the women were not open to listening to
1: uh, oh well this is i uh, you made me think of there was a there was an interesting moment a kind of fascinating moment um which is that the u s The U.S. delegation, the U.S. government in general was very into the promise of NGOs as a kind of private sector governance. I mean, it's it's really interesting. I mean, I think for a lot of scholars of NGOs, they've looked at the ways that NGOs we're part of a kind of what we think of as a neoliberal project or a project of kind right. of privatizing certain aspects of governance. And and so um, there's a lot of language in the organizing of this from the U.S. delegation that they want the private sector to be really important. Among other things, the U.S. government didn't want to put up any money. So they kept telling these women to raise money like in the private sector. Go like ask the private sector for money. And but so. Among other things, they wanted to have a relationship between the official delegation and these NGOs. And so, the the first weekend, the, the conference starts on a Thursday and kind of awkwardly goes over two weekends. So the first Saturday of the conference, they decide they're going to have a, a kind of an open forum, an open meeting um, at the U.S. embassy where the U.S. delegation can, you know, it's like meet your meet your delegates or whatever, and the UN's delegation will be there and um, NGOs can come and ask questions or make comments, and, and they're really keen on this idea that there's going to be open communication between the, US de- the del- official delegation and all of these private sector grassroots activists or whatever. And they get there and the the delegation, it's the it's the largest delegation of the conference. They've violated every U.N. protocol about how big your delegation is supposed to be and how it's supposed to be composed. But um, so it's a, it's a quite large delegation and uh, is actually pretty diverse in certain ways. The Nixon administration had been. Um, uh, sorry, the, and by this point, the Ford, of course, in the middle of this, there's also Nixon resigning. So this is now at this point, the Ford administration had been a somewhat cynical in terms of the way they've composed. it. They've checked off every box in terms of they have, you know, two African-Americans and a couple of, of what they call Spanish speakers and, and so forth. But a lot of the people in the audience are activists who are not satisfied. So there's a woman from the. Congress on Racial Equality, and someone from Barraza Unida, and there's still a lot of protesting against the the um, delegation, but the delegation, the U.S. delegation, is led by Daniel Parker, who's the head of USAID, and there's a lot of opposition to him, not just because he's a man, although that's the most vocal part of it, but USAID is responsible, again, for all of these like population control efforts. In fact, one of the most hilarious moments in that long confrontation is there are, there are actually two men on the official delegation, one of whom, they're both USAID, one is the director, and, and then there's another man, and the other guy gets up and introduces himself, and he, he, he's getting kind of razzed by the audience, and um, he's talking about how important it is to have control over your reproduction, and someone from the audience asks him if he's had a vasectomy, and he says yes, I mean, it's just a crazy exchange of people like, talking about this and, and how important it is for men to also be part of food. So but the, these things are really, again, like the idea of like who could participate in this and who could have any say in, in what, who could represent whom, essentially. It's just a fraud, fraud issue. Okay,
0: so now we're going to get to the big question. One of the things that you claim is that this was sort of the beginning of the global global feminism What is global feminism in light of this
1: conference? And what is the legacy of the International Women's Year and the conference? Uh huh. So global feminism, I think, at this point is, um, I don't, I don't think that most scholars think of it in the singular, right? I mean, there's many feminisms that, that I think operate in different ways and serve different purposes. I think that it's, feminism is now a really diverse concept. Um, and that, which is all for the good. I think that actually is one of the many legacies of, of not just this conference, but there's, there are these three conferences that follow. I think a lot of people remember the Beijing conference in 95, because that's where Hillary Rodham Clinton spoke. But, um, there were two before that. There was one in Copenhagen that was supposed to have been in Tehran, but then there was a revolution in Tehran, so it got moved. Uh, and, and then a, a end of decade one that had been in Nairobi, which I, I think many people consider a really triumphant one. Um, And so, part of what these conferences did in the aggregate, and I think the Mexico City really kicks this off, is is just radically diversifies what we understand feminism to be. I think that U.S. feminists now, if we if we have a a deeper and broader understanding of feminism, it's because of this. You know, if, if you look at the ways that women understood feminism, that that group that came down, particularly the the now the National Organization for Women. Uh, A a cohort that went down to Mexico City, the narrowness of that that seems so crazy from our perspective, that radical diversification comes out of partly out of this series of conferences. And and probably the most important thing that happens is not just that you have an official government conference but that, that NGO Tribune launches and launches in part out of just anger and frustration a few really important Transnational networks of women that have reshaped feminism. That I, the, there's a few that I talk about. Um, there's one called Dawn, which is, uh, it's a really nice acronym for a clunky name, which is the Development Alternatives for Women for a New Era, and it's started by a woman uh, who was at the Mexico City conference and was at all of them. She's actually written a book about women in the UN. Uh, a young, well, at that, at in Mexico City, a young uh, development economist named Devaki Jain, who is. Marvelous and incredibly energetic. And she starts Dawn, it starts out as like friends of Devaki Jane is basically what the, what the idea is. But out of frustration, she has this moment when she's talking about the creation of dawn she said you know we would go to these un conferences and people would act like we were a bunch of punks like we were just disrupting things just a b- bunch of punks trying to mess everything up and that's not what we were trying to do and and she made a rule that to be part of dawn you it wasn't enough that you'd be from the third world you had to live in the third world i mean she said it's you know if you are reading the times of london every morning and you open your tap and it turns on that's a different experience from what I have. You know, like, like you're living a different life from if you're living in Jamaica or Fiji or whatever. And, and that was really important. And she talked about how Dawn then by Nairobi is using their self identifying as feminists. Uh, Peggy Antrobus, who's this amazing, um West Indian woman, again, an economist who who becomes an important part of Dawn, says, you know, when she went to her first feminist conference, she lied to everybody about what it was. She called it a development conference because feminism, she said, feminists were just white lesbians. Like, we didn't have anything to do with that. You know, it was like, wasn't our thing. And so Dawn really both uh, uh, reshapes feminism to be something that's more relevant to them, but also – they adopt a lot of feminist ideas. There's a, there's a kind of, uh, really productive interaction there that's, that's important. Um, the other really key network that comes out of this is the, what's called the Latin American and Caribbean Feminist Encounters, the Encuentros Latinoamericanos, like Encuentros Feministas de Latinoamericanos de, del Caribe. And they still meet, they, I think the last one was in Lima, and there's another one coming up in Montevideo. Um, and they, they meet, uh, often, as, as did Dawn, kind of in, in communication with un activities not just the women's conferences but how what what's the gender aspect to these environmental conferences or to you know so the climate accords or to population conferences and so forth so those networks really start out of mexico city again in part because they're so angry about that betty Friedan episode and, and and how shut out they felt from those deliberations and has Utterly reshaped how we understand feminism now. I don't think that any of us would think about feminism in a way that that is not completely re, reimagined by what these networks have, have done. Those NGO networks are complicated. There's been a lot of discussion about you know, if the money is still coming from the first world and there's a kind of purse strings problem there and how do you maintain independence? And, and that I think is something that hasn't gone away. I think that people still struggle with that. But, but it's really, uh, I think, a, a critical aspect of, of what's happened. Okay.
0: Um, thank you, Joshua Alcott. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. You can reach me through my website at lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.